Once again, it is a privilege, always a privilege for me to be invited to share with you the Tidelands community, which I consider my church home, even though you see me about 50% of the time. The other times I'm usually assisting in worship in the Warm Beach area. Um, the text that will be on screen is from a translation that I don't normally work from, but we're going, to, we're going to read it together. But as I'm preaching, I may refer to a phrase that is actually in the NIV 2011 translation. So you'll just kind of come and go. It's all written in Hebrew, but I'm not going to read it in Hebrew because I don't do that. <laughs> um, but here we go. Uh, Psalm 139, and I'm actually going to say a few words before I read it, but it's good that it's up there. 30 years ago, uh, give or take, at an intervarsity staff retreat, intervarsity is a college age ministry, Eugene Peterson introduced me and other people there to the concept of the practice of praying the Psalms. And we, this morning, heard as Michelle read, our call to worship or our psalm, it, that was from the, Eugene Peterson's translation or rendering of Psalm 80, was that, I think? Um, and it, this was my first introduction 30 years ago to Eugene Peterson, who continued to be an influence in my life all those years. He passed away last year. I mean, I was a Christian. I'd been to church. I assumed that I knew the Psalms because I had sung portions of them in choral works and as hymns. I had memorized a few favorite Psalms or portions. I had tucked bookmarks into my Bible that had Psalms, pieces of them written. But mostly, to be honest, I thought of the Psalms as antiquities. They were artifacts of some ancient form of worship that Israel had and that I would be, uh, you know, interested in the same way I might. I love museums, and so going to the Psalms was sort of like going to a museum. I was looking at old things that were interesting. I had certainly never prayed the Psalms. I had no idea what he meant by that. Eugene taught us that session that the Psalms are the prayer book of the people of God and have been for thousands of years. Praying the Psalms, which is to say actively praying them as opposed to reading them or having them on bookmarks, uh, praying the Psalms shapes our imaginations, it expands our vocabulary for prayer, and it deepens our understanding of who God is and what God is doing in the world. It also helps us to understand what's going on in our own lives, which we sometimes are not as honest about, even to ourselves. So praying the Psalms helps us learn how to pray. Eugene Peterson also taught me that praying all of the Psalms, 150 of them, Rather than selected favorites, where you pick the ones you like the best, that this practice, praying all of the psalms in the entirety of the psalm of the Psalter, this will shape and expand and deepen our faith. Praying all of the psalms often takes us into territory we would rather not go. 
uncomfortable spaces. We heard one of those this morning. It was a prayer for God to remember his people, the vine he had planted, and deal with your enemies. That's not usually part of my praying. And we're going to run into a passage just like that today. Not all psalms, I know, feel like prayers, and that's okay. Some of them are histories. They're stories of the people. They were sung um, as the people were gathering, going up to Jerusalem, and they, they would recite and sing their history together. And some of them are actual calls to worship or worship songs. Well, our stories are the raw material of our prayers. So stories belong inside prayer. Prayer grows out of story. Um, as you expand your prayer life, that will happen. And worship is like breathing. It cannot be limited to an hour on a Sunday. If you don't breathe frequently, you won't live. And so even those story psalms and worship psalms belong in the prayer book. They're, re they're there for a reason. But one, Psalm 139 is clearly a prayer. It, it starts off it, all the way through. It addresses God. And so if you haven't tried praying the Psalms, Psalm 139 is a good place to start to try this practice. These are the ways, ways it is a prayer. It speaks directly to God. That may seem normal. It's actually audacious. Who are we? Who are we? to directly address the creator and sustainer of the universe. But this, this psalm says, come, do that. This psalm is free from sentimentality and the self-centeredness that so often colors our untutored prayers. We pray about stuff that belongs in our life, our story. God says, do that, but there's a bigger world that God cares about. We can be invited into those larger prayers 139 is a good model to free us from sentimentality. The language in this prayer is vigorous and muscular and imaginative, and that teaches us to be vigorous, muscular, and imaginative in our prayers. It focuses our attention on God, and yet, though God is enormous and everlasting, this prayer is arrestingly intimate. And, as I said, it has one of those problem passages, those thorny patches we would rather avoid. They make us uncomfortable. So, before I read the psalm, one more thing about how psalms work. You'll notice it when we read it. First, these psalms are poems. They're actually songs. We don't have the music to go with them. So we're not the only musicians who hadn't heard this before. We got the words, we don't know the tune. That's okay. Make up a tune if you want to pray the psalms to music and some of them are beautifully set. Um, they work as poems, but not the way we are used to poetry working. Psalms differ from the Bible's other historical and prophetic texts, and they differ from gospel narratives and New Testament letters, so we need to pay attention to genre to be aware we're working with poems. That's one thing to know. Um, you'll see how one thing that happens in this poem, this prayer poem, is the beginning and the ending have an, a resonance with one another. And that really matters. That didn't just happen. It was meant to be. 
Second, the Psalms all use vivid images. Hebrew is a very concrete language. You will not find abstractions. You won't find words ending in T-I-O-N, abstractions in the Psalms. You're going to find words that are visceral, that involve the body, that involve people and food and stuff and harvest and stuff you can put your hands on. It's a very concrete language. And when we translate the Psalms, um, we need to hold on to that or watch for it. And if a translation veers into the abstract, it's not doing the job um, that the psalmist intended. Finally, Hebrew poetry doesn't rely on rhyme and rhythm. This is why it translates well, because you don't have to rhyme words for this to be a poem. Parallel expressions. You're going to find an expression, and then the expression is going to either be echoed to say the similar thing, or it's going to be inverted to say the opposite thing. It's going to be some version of the expression that came first, and that's to engage your imagination. So listen and watch for paired ideas. So now we're going to hear Psalm 139 from the CEB version. Lord, you have examined me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, even from far away, you comprehend my plans. You study my traveling and my resting. You are thoroughly familiar with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, Lord, that you don't already know completely. You surround me, front and back. You put your hand on me. That kind of knowledge is too much for me. It's so high above me, I can't fathom it. Where could I go to get away from your spirit? Where could I go to escape your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I went down to the grave, says this translation in Hebrew, if I went down to Sheol, behold, you. And I'm going to tell you what that means. You would be there too. If I could fly on the wings of dawn, stopping to rest only on the far side of the ocean, even there, your hand would guide me. Even there, your strong hand would hold me tight. If I said the darkness will definitely hide me, in this sense, the darkness will envelop or overcome me. The light will become night around me. Even then, the darkness is not too dark for you. Nighttime would shine bright as day because darkness is the same as light to you. You! Lord, are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you that I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was being put together in a secret place. When I was being woven together in the deep parts of the earth, your eyes saw my embryo. And on your scroll, every day was written that was being formed for me. Before any one of those days had yet happened, God, your plans are incomprehensible to me. Their total number is countless. If I tried to count them, 
They outnumber the grains of sand. If I came to the very end of counting, I'd still be with you. And I would run out of numbers, is the point. If only God, you would kill the wicked. If only murderers would get away from me, the people who talk about you but only for wicked schemes, the people who are your enemies, who use your name as if it were of no significance. Don't I hate everyone who hates you? Don't I despise those who attack you? Yes, I hate them through and through. They have become my enemies too. Examine me, God. Look at my heart. Put me to the test. Know my anxious thoughts. Look to see if there is any idolatrous way in me. And then lead me on the eternal path. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, is this good news or bad? We live in a security and privacy-obsessed culture. Hacks and security breaches make the news. Cameras record our driving, our shopping, our banking. Cookies surreptitiously track our online activity and then suggest songs or books or material things that we might like to buy based upon our previous browsing. If Amazon knows your life, who else knows? GPS helps us find our way in unfamiliar places, but it also permits surveillance. Subaru knows where I am and reminds me that my window washer fluid is low. What else does Subaru know about where I go? If you click on Google Maps Street View, you can see the house you grew up in. It's actually kind of creepy. To be so well thoroughly known, is this good news or bad? How does that feel? Well, kind of depends on your life, doesn't it? I think this psalm can be read both ways, and it says that God knows everything, everything about us, even the most private parts of our lives, the thoughts that we never put into words, God knows. God knows everything. There's nowhere you can hide. Well, for some, that is comforting. It feels warm and secure, and it's good to be well-known and still loved. But for a lot of us, the thought that God knows us so thoroughly is not a source of comfort. It actually feels threatening. This psalm does not argue for either view. This psalm simply states as a theological fact, this is the God we worship. This is who God is. God knows everything there is to be known. This is an aspect of God's character. Now, before we just take that for granted, of course it is, we have to consider the context in which this psalm was written and other psalms. The whole, the whole Psalter grew out of the life of the people of Israel as they were making their way through being formed as a people and established as a culture. The other cultures of the ancient Near East were, with the exception of Israel, 
The other cultures were pagan, polytheistic cultures. Many of them had diverse gods, hundreds of them, versions of those gods, and many of these were represented by idols. Various gods and goddesses were believed by these other cultures to have influence over particular aspects of human life, harvest, rain, um, the, the plentifulness of having children or being deprived thereof. I mean, there was, gods were in charge of these various aspects. Living in that kind of a world, this fragmented world with gods here and gods there and gods hiding and gods visible, well, it's complicated. It's stressful. One must keep track of the various gods and one, one must appease them at appropriate moments with appropriate offerings. Don't mess up. Bring the right stuff to the right God at the right time so that your harvest or the pregnancy or your business will thrive. Um, it's complicated. But there's one big advantage in living in such a world. The gods and the powers they represent are, by understanding, limited. They're in charge of things like harvest, but not business. They're in charge of pregnancies, but not in charge of whatever else you're trying to care about. They're not all-knowing gods. They are perceived as focused and able to mess up with human life in certain ways, but not all-knowing. And so if a person in such a culture manages life right, then they can manipulate, they, they can manage these gods and keep them at a safe, placated distance. Theoretically, you can be in control. That's the context in which this psalm comes to us. Surrounded by idol-obsessed cultures, Israel's faith stood alone in proclaiming one God, the creator, sustainer of all, who knows all. <clears throat> Nothing can be hidden from this God. So this is a God who cannot be manipulated to meet your own needs. Well, that's good news and bad news, depending on how you see it. If you prefer to manage your gods and making offerings to them at appropriate times and places, but be otherwise, therefore, free of their influence, it's not great news that this God knows everything. It's a little intimidating. Because we like to be in control, we like to manage our lives, we like to know what we're doing. I keep a calendar. In fact, it's sitting on that chair. I like to know what I'm supposed to do today, tomorrow, and next week. That's important. But the Bible tells us God has created us as his sons and daughters and given us a great deal of freedom and responsibility. But even about our time and our energy, our resources, our education, our opportunities, the things that are gifts of God, this psalm says, yes, these are gifts, but there are boundaries. There are boundaries upon all of that. Boundaries upon our hubris, our sense of exalted self. Our freedom, God-given, is not absolute. We are not all-knowing, God is. We are not ultimately in control, God is. We don't see the end from the beginning, God does. We don't see ourselves or know ourselves thoroughly. 
Only God sees us and knows us thoroughly. So humility is appropriate. Acknowledging that we're finite creatures of a sovereign God liberates us from the delusion of control. This is a freedom that is one of the gifts of our salvation. To be the object of love and total knowledge is to find yourself freed from the complex and exhausting work of managing and appeasing idols, however they may show up. Friends, we are known and we are loved, and that's good news. But we can hear that as good news only if we release our grip on the illusion that we're ultimately in charge. And we have to welcome God's love and knowledge. We can't have it both ways, says this psalm. Now, God, as revealed to us here, is neither distant nor impersonal. The deistic God of the Enlightenment was the God we could manage because this God was the one. The deism, deists who preceded us in our culture said, he's, yes, God is real, but he's, uh, he's very far away. He set the universe in motion, and then he backed off to just let it run. This psalmist says, oh no, this God is intimately involved with me, Wherever I go, it's very personal. And here I'm, I'm going to quote from the NIV, but you can find it there in the text. The psalmist speaks directly and intimately to God. You know, O God, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. And this word, I told you Hebrew, is very concrete. Discern is a bit abstract. The Hebrew word is you sift my thoughts the way a person sifting wheat from chaff. You've seen pictures of this. It's a large screen. The grain that's been harvested goes onto the screen, and then someone tosses it and sifts it. The chaff is blown away, and what remains is the good stuff, the grain. Lord, you take my thoughts like wheat, and you sift them, and away goes the worthless not usable stuff. God tosses and evaluates the psalmist's thoughts and what remains is worthwhile. The psalmist says, you search out my path and my lying down. God knows his coming, his going from his house, his daily pathways. He knows his work and his play and the lying down refers to his love life. God knows this all. His words, his thoughts, his actions, his choices. It's all seen. You hem me in. You create a boundary for me. Because God says no to certain things that will harm those he loves. You lay your hand upon me. This, this is this kind of an uncle to a nephew, a father to a son. There is this no, don't do that. Have you ever done this to a kid? Pay attention to me. On the shoulder, no. And here's a reason why. This is God's authority. This is God's care. This is God's guidance. Such knowledge, says the psalmist, is too wonderful. It's too amazing. 
It is so high I cannot attain, I cannot comprehend. That's not Hebrew. It's so high, it's an unscalable wall. Have you ever done one of those courses or watched them where there's a 12-foot wall to be scaled? It's impossible, only with help, right? It's an unscalable wall is a, probably a pretty good rendering of the Hebrew. The psalmist then tries to imagine the limits of God's knowing. Are there any? Keep in mind, the idols of the cultures around them were limited, sometimes just to walking distance from where that idol had sway. He says, where could I go to escape being so known by you? He surveys the possibilities. If I ascend to heaven, which is in Hebrew a very different concept from what we think of as heaven, but we're not going to unpack that. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. Now that's not surprising. It's where God is supposed to be, right? But if I roll out my bed, the Hebrew concreteness here, if I roll out my bed in shale, behold you. This is not the word for hell, but it is the word for the realm of the dead. This is a place of gloom and decay from which there is no escape. Only a very powerful God could rescue people from shale. Otherwise, it would be hopeless. But he says, you're there. Even when I feel like I'm in shale. If I take the wings of the morning to the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. The wings of the morning refers to the dawn. What a beautiful image. The psalmist imagines catching a ride on the breaking of day. Picture the Mediterranean Sea. The breaking of day, of course, comes from the east. And then riding and sailing this dawn as it goes across the Mediterranean Ocean to the limits of the then known world, which we would think of as Gibraltar. Spain. Beyond that, they didn't know what was out there. So he says, if I took the wings of the morning and sailed across the Mediterranean to the western limits, to the end of the earth, we would say, even there in the land I can only imagine, your hands would lead and hold me. God's hands are symbols of his authority and his power, and they're gently but firmly applied. He then ponders if crushing darkness could separate him from God. This image allows us to supply whatever circumstances we experience as crushing darkness. I would warrant everyone in this room has experienced crushing darkness. Is it depression? Economic concern? The loss of a job? Of a relationship? Is it illness, failure, grief, betrayal? The list goes on and on. Crushing darkness is light to you, even there, when I can't see a thing. The New Testament writer Paul agrees, who can separate us ever from the love of Christ? He says in Romans 8, can hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, 
peril, sword, in another place, shipwreck he talks about? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors, for neither death nor life, height nor depth, anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, of course, knew the Psalms, as did Jesus. These were their prayers, too. The psalmist reviews God's presence in his life through time. He, he looks back to what he could barely understand as the beginning of his existence. From the first moment he existed in the womb, God knew him thoroughly. As a skillful craftsman, God wove the threads of his life together. God already knows all the days of his life like a scroll, like an Old Testament scroll read in the synagogue. God has already read the chapters he has yet to live, what has not been unrolled yet. And he says God's thoughts are weighty. Uh, that's a very Hebrew concept. The glory of God is, is a heavy thing. And God's thoughts are weighty. They're valuable as rare gemstones. And, and yet they are vast in number. And trying to count those thoughts of God is like counting grains on the sand. And remember where Israel is. There's, there's a great expanse of exposure there to the Mediterranean. This psalmist knows what it is to walk a sandy beach and imagine counting the grains of sand and to say, if I could possibly even count them all and come up with a number, your thoughts, oh God, would be more. I would run out of numbers before I could count all your thoughts. And then we come to this part where we want to shut the book. I don't want to pray this. This confuses me. This makes me uncomfortable. We'd rather not read it, let alone pray. It's an abrupt and jarring change at verse 19. The psalmist shifts from his extended meditation on God's loving care and knowledge to outright anger and outrage. He suddenly says, Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O oh God. And I think he means it with a great deal of energy. This isn't pleasantly spoken. There are other hate psalms. I'm just going to tell you, this doesn't stand alone. Psalm 109, Psalm 137 are examples. We heard a brief reference in Psalm 180. What is such language doing here in a prayer book? I hate. What? Is that prayer? It can be. What is such language doing in the songs of the people of God meant for worship and formation? What is such language doing in the collection that is meant to teach us how to pray more skillfully, more expansively? I hate. Well, it's not there by accident. Um, uniformly, such hate psalms and passages express outrage at evil. And this language gives us, believing people today, gives us permission and language. You are invited to express your hate and outrage at evil. You can use this language. That's why it's there. We can take this hate and outrage we feel and form it into words and place it before God as an offering and say, I'm with you. I hate this. 
This is wrong. That's a useful set of words to have when you read the news. Whatever it is that you believe God hates. We instinctively recoil, though, when we hit this passage. We think, oh, I couldn't read that out loud in church. In fact, if you had your Bible, the the physical book of your Bible today in front of you, and you looked at that, I would bet not one of us has underlined verse 19 through 22. We may have underlined, search me, O God, but not probably this hate portion. It's awkward for us. But if we're going to faithfully interpret scripture, we cannot skip these passages. We're not given that privilege to pick and choose. The ones we find comforting, the ones we write on sticky notes and put on the mirror, and the leave the rest alone. Uh, We have to deal with them. We have to deal intelligently and faithfully with them. And more importantly, This I learned from Jean Peterson. We have to let these texts deal with us. Let the text read your heart. Sit under the text. Let it break your illusion and delusion about yourself. Let it wake you up from drowsy distraction and comfortableness. So how do we plot a path through this patch of thorns which wants to snag us and and hurt even. Can we politely ignore it like you would the uh, awkward outburst of a slightly unhinged relative at Thanksgiving and just go, he came and we knew he would. No, this is there for us to pray and to use in worship privately and corporately. So let's, let's get a little help here. God knows this psalmist and those of us who pray this psalm. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And if we pray this psalm, we're saying, that's good, that's comforting, that's important, that's good news. We admit the transparency of our whole life. The stuff we think we hide from others, we know that God sees. We say, it's all open to you. And you are a God I cannot manage comfortably by doing things like idol worshipers do. And this psalmist declares himself on God's side, on God's side. This is to be on the side of righteousness, on the side of justice, on the side of God's rule, on the kingdom side of things. And he recognizes that there are enemies, and he calls on God to deal with the enemies. Caution, the enemies he's speaking of are not the annoying circumstances of life when the car doesn't work, when you can't get a parking spot, when your hair doesn't do what you want it to do. These are not the enemies he has in mind. These are petty things, and we so often waste too much energy on these petty things. Expand, the psalmist says. There are enemies. Pray worthy of those enemies. Be aware that the world has God's enemies in it. These matter. To the extent we follow Christ, they are enemies of ours as well. It is dangerous naivete to imagine that God has no enemies in our world. And we need a biblical perspective to recognize those enemies, to see them and to call them out for what they are. And we do this in community most safely. That's why it's so important that we study all of Scripture, Old Testament and New. I 
encourage you to pray the Psalms and to read the prophets. It will keep you sane in a world that sometimes doesn't offer sanity. To pray this bold prayer, this portion of the whole prayer, is to stake our position against oppression, against injustice, exploitation, corruption, greed, all of the things that God condemns in the whole Bible through the prophets and through Jesus. We take our stand in solidarity with the people that God loves, the people that have no power. They may not even believe in God, but can we pray for the Rohingya people? Yes. Can we pray for people at the border of our own country? Can we pray for those who are hooked on opioids? Yes. They're powerless right now. Can we pray for them? Can we stand in solidarity with God's love for them? Can we stand in opposition to those who take advantage of them or oppress them for whatever reason? Corrupt landlords, schoolyard bullies, repressive governments all over the world. God says no. Those are his enemies, and we stand with God in that. We declare ourselves on the side of God's values, whatever the cost. We align ourselves with God's way of bringing life and hope out of death and despair, out of shale to bring life, out of darkness to bring light. We say, this is the God I worship. This is what God does. And we say, I'm part of that. I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and just let it happen to those people because it's not happening to me. We reject our culture's studied indifference and we embrace a kingdom perspective. We are informed by the biblical vision of what God is and wants to do in the world to restore everything that was lost and was broken in humankind's rebellion. So with a biblical perspective, we can pray, Oh God, I hate those who hate you. I count them my enemies. That's okay to pray. And then there's another twist. There's a surprise. We've been wrapped up in this passion of justice, righteousness. Knock them out, Lord. But instead of asking God to judge the enemies, the psalmist says, oh God, judge me. Search me. Examine me. Look inside my heart. His passion for God's righteousness and kingdom has opened his eyes. And he's railing against the enemies of God. And he gets a glimpse of himself in the mirror. He says, Oh God, is it possible I could betray you? Is it possible I could be your enemy, ever. He realizes the world is not so black and white. I'm on the good side, they're on the bad side. Sharp line in between. He realizes that's not the way it is. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if you have read anything of his, you might have read this Gulag Archipelago. Famous quote. Solzhenitsyn was a Russian dissident 
in the Soviet era, he wrote bravely, courageously against the oppression of the Soviet system upon the Russian people. He was sent to the Gulag, which is prison camp. But he continued to write. This is out of his piece, The Gulag Archipelago. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only. But the line dividing good and evil runs right through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy his or her own heart? That's where the psalmist has come to. He is railed against the enemies of God. And then he stops and he glimpses in the mirror, oh, this could be me. And he's humbled and he cries with new insight and intensity in the present tense, command, begging form of the verb, examine me, search me, know my heart, test me, know my thoughts. Please see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Having journeyed with this psalmist, we realize that we are, we are prone sometimes to sentimentality in worship and in prayer. And this slaps reality in, in our face and says, don't go there. It prevents us from indulging ourselves in some romantic passion for God's kingdom. It's a passion that might last halfway through lunch today and then after our lives return to normal and we head into the week posing no threat at all to the kingdom of this world which is replete with idols that are ever demanding and ever insatiable. So we come to this place where we realize we could be, we don't want to be, but we could be, in some cases, aligned with the enemies of God. We say, examine me, pull me back. Put that hand on my shoulder and say no. Be with me in the dark place and pull me out of it. Because this God knows us and tests us and probes us and leads us and protects us. The psalm ends with the same words that it started with, but we as the prayers of this psalm are in a new place. We've journeyed. Words that were descriptions. You examined me. You have examined me in the English. Now become imperatives now present. Examine me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. This is the cry of a heart that belongs to a faithful person who knows that every day I risk betraying the God I love. Every moment, this is a possibility. This prayer is the trusting response of a free, finite, created being crying out, hang on to me. Don't let me go. Put me into your holy space. Surround me with things that will hold me in that space 
and put my feet on that path. It's a very Hebrew way of looking at it. If there's any wicked or offensive or idolatrous way, he's saying anything that is an affront to your holiness to betray your reputation in the world I live in, any compromise with idols of any sort, stop me. Idols come in so many forms. They don't need to be made of wood or gold. They don't need to be made of anything material. Power, greed, position, success, knowledge, even competency. This, I love feeling competent about things when I can fix it. And, and I have to be careful that I'm not just seeking that as, as my validation. I'm valid because God knows me and loves me. Don't get other stuff in the place of that. We resemble what we revere, says one writer. What we revere, what we honor, we come to resemble. For ruin or restoration. That's why biblical faith is so consistently opposed to idolatry. Biblical faith points us to the living God who knows us and wants to love us into new and greater life. When he finishes, lead me in the way everlasting. It can also be translated, lead me in the way of the ancients. Lead me in the ancient way. In other words, don't let me just get so off on myself that I think I can make it up. Lead me in the way that is proven. Lead me in the way of those to whom you first revealed yourself as the one holy God. Guard my steps from wandering into cheap, self-deluded imitation of the life of faith. Keep my feet on the true path. So there's Psalm 139. It's worth praying. Next week I'll be with you and we are going to start with the Lord's Prayer. And we're gonna go right after that into a story that Jesus told his listeners, which is actually the whole story is a problem. And I hope you're here because I think we have a, a way out of the problem. And if you want to look in your Bible, find the Lord's Prayer and see what follows it in Matthew and in Luke. Luke is the more important one. So let's pray together part of this psalm, and we'll finish with this and come back to singing. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See and help us to see if there's any offensive, idolatrous, compromising way in us. And lead us in the way that is everlasting, that leads to life. Amen.